0: morning, everybody. My name is Tom Scott, chairman of the Nantucket Project. Joined, as I always am, by R.P. Eddy. Also today by Chief William Bratton, who R.P., who has a long history with and is going to give us an introduction to the chief. So, R.P., take it away.
1: Chief, I'm so glad you're here. Thanks for being here Uh, in case anyone's unfamiliar. And I don't think many people are. You're considered perhaps one of the greatest leaders of policing in the last century. I'm not the only person to have said that. Far, far from it. You're the only person to have been the chief of police of both L.A. and New York, America's largest cities. In fact, you were the police, the police leader in New York twice. You are largely credited for the massive decline in crime in New York from about 26, 27 years ago when it was perhaps the least livable, least safe city in America to now when it's one of the safest in America. Most folks uh, say you are a humongous, if not the sole reason for that to happen. You also, as I mentioned, are the police commissioner of Los Angeles and of Boston. Uh, you've helped London and the UK with their policing system. You've been recognized by the Queen uh, as an OBE for your service there. Um, and you're generally recognized as one of the foremost leaders on on advances in policing, such as CompStat, broken windows series, a variety of other things. You and I have been friends for well over a decade. It's been a pleasure to work with you. You and I have spent most of our time working on counterterrorism, another area where you've been an extraordinary leader. And perhaps as we talk today, counterterrorism might be one of the reasons the police are in a bit of the pickle there in today about the militarization of police. It's something we hear a lot about, etc. So it's a, it's a privilege to have you here. I really appreciate you taking the time and I look forward to um, learning from you in a moment when um, being a police officer in America is probably as hard as it's ever been. And being a black man in America is probably as hard as it's ever been as well. So this is a tumultuous time and leaders like you who have deep knowledge, deep wisdom and deep empathy are gonna be critical to us to, f- to chart a path ahead um, where I know there's a lot of good actors and way more than there are bad actors. So thanks for spending some time with us.
2: It's great to be with you, R.P. If I may expand a little on the introduction as it relates to you and I, you and I go back uh, literally almost a quarter of a century, not 10 years, years—that uh, that's how much time flies. Uh, uh, experience together expanded greatly uh, post 9-11 days that uh, those that know you I know you have a particular interest and expertise in the area of terrorism, your relationship with many of the top leaders in the world in that regard, including uh, Richard Clark, who certainly was a major player in the events of 9-11, who I was introduced to through you. Uh, our relationship is that close that, uh, as you know, I offered you a position with me when I went to the LAPD with John Miller, who was heading up counterterrorism to come out and work with us to create for that department its counterterrorism expansion after 9-11 and we've kept in touch on a myriad of issues since that time and privileged every year to also attend that great conference you put together here in new york with many of the leaders in the world discussing many of the world's issues i can hardly wait for the uh 2020 version of that with all that's going on uh it's uh, you're not going to have room for all the issues that need to be discussed so just a
1: little background
0: for your uh, your audience in terms of uh, you and I and a sense of the relationship we've had. Thanks, Chief. Thank Thanks you, Chief. Um, Chief, what I thought I'd do is just give you a little bit more of an intro to the show and then also just to give an audience a sense of the point of view as we come at this today. Um, I think it goes without saying we're three white men here. Um, our perspectives are what they are and limited to a certain extent, which makes sense to me. Um, My great grandfather, Charlie Scott, was the chief of police of Port Chester, New York many years ago. Um, My father, uh, both father and brother Marines, Um, I would describe myself politically as a version of a libertarian, which is to say generally of maybe a little bit more conservative than most. Um, But I also uh, have a specific view of the time that we're in, and it relates in many ways to um, the the tenor of the show. And, And generally, we've avoided Uh, politics uh, because our feeling was that, particularly in a time of COVID, getting out really reliable information was was very meaningful. And um, towards the tail end or whatever, you know, a number of months into the COVID story, the George Floyd story kind of blew up and um, the tenor of the show has changed a little bit. And uh, I thought that um, I would give us just a quick video introduction, which sort of outlines partly my point of view, because you'll see it a lot from my point of view. But I think also will outline generally the point of view of the show itself and in a way that I think might be helpful both to you and to people watching. So uh, I'm going to do that now. On Friday, I participated in a in a a demonstration in the city. I went into New York and it was a Black Lives Matter gathering and it was pretty powerful. I have to say it was one of the more powerful experiences in my life. I got very emotional, you know, and and I I, I got emotional in, in unexpected moments from unexpected things. I think it was people's passion, like I was really inspired by their passion. It was very clear to me that there was big groups of people who are sort of at their wits end, but they also just had such I felt hope. That's what I felt. I felt a degree of hope and like a strident desire to be heard. And and I thought it was beautiful. What followed was the mayor of Washington and the city council yeah. changed the name of the it became Black Lives Matter Plaza. They wrote Black Lives Matter in the road in between the the street and the White House is Lafayette Square. Um, And the image from the sky showed the White House currently occupied by Donald Trump and Black Lives Matter. And for me, I posted that on Instagram. I've never done a political post. I don't know if you call that a political post. I guess you'd probably call it a political post. I know exactly where I stand on that image. I know exactly that I stand with the hopes of what Black Lives Lives Matter currently represents versus the way the White House is acting and speaking. I just I know exactly where I stand and that, you know, anyone who starts starts to bring up different technicalities of either side of that equation. I know exactly where I stand on that equation, um, which brought me to do it. And you're right. We are talking a lot about Donald Trump. It's interesting because you if you've been listening, you hear us say what we say about politics. But and and we talk about it from a point of view of humanity, like we want to be we wanted to be informative to humanity about covid. And I, I stand there still. But I think humanity has been played out so clearly in my head that it's hard to keep my mouth shut. And in some ways it does relate to my children, but it also just relates to this notion of my brothers and my sisters. Symbolically speaking, at my fellow citizens, like I want, I want to be part of a healthy, happy, loving culture. And therefore, whether you think we should be back to business or not around COVID, just wear a mask. It's okay. Like no one's. It's okay. You're going to be better off with a mask, and you can probably be in business, and you can treat people with respect, and you can treat people with love, and lift them up, and do those other things. We do not have to be in opposition to ourselves all the time. And if the president is going to so loudly. proclaim his desire for divisiveness, I'm going to declare the other. So, you know, you get a sense. I mean, again, that was a lot of that was personal to me, but I think it also reflects the journey that the show has been on. And and I'm comfortable today talking about specifics, of course. Um, Well, maybe it's not, of course, but I am. And and I know that this the spirit of the conversation will be healthy. but I also just wanted to, again, set up sort of how we we're viewing this and, and why I think, you know, having these kinds of conversations at this time is is, uh, you know, important, but also tricky. And I, I'm sure this isn't the first you've heard of this. So anyway, RP, that that's sort of my setup for today. And I'm, I'm going to toss it to you and uh, and uh, let let's let's get into it. And and again, Chief, thank you so much for being here. We really appreciate it.
1: Chief, Braden, it, again, it's so great to be with you. Thanks. This is uh Have you, has there been a more difficult time to be a police officer right now? Has there ever been a moment that's been as complex as this right now, what we're seeing?
2: I don't think there's ever been a more difficult time, uh, certainly from my experiences, over 50 years. And uh, the idea of uh, the show being on a journey, uh, uh, in fact, policing has been on a journey since what I would describe as it's... uh, Beginning in 1829, Sir Robert Peel of Metropolitan Police, uh, his nine principles, which have been basically my Bible. And that first principle was that the basic mission for which the police exists is to prevent crime and disorder. And another of the principles is the idea that the people are the police and the police are the people. And I would describe where we are on that journey now uh, as an in inflection point, as a... Uh, extraordinary point in time, uh, a time of revolution. Uh, the 50 years I've been associated with policing has been an evolutionary period interrupted by four or five revolutions. And let me take a moment just to take you back and bring you forward. 1970, I committed policing in Boston, just back in the Vietnam War. It was a time of great change in our country, similar demonstrations to what we're experiencing now against the war in support of civil rights Time of great open optimism, so much of which uh, faded over the next 20 years as uh, issues of race seemingly got better. But as we've clearly seen recently, uh, there was always just beneath the surface, uh, this volcano ready to erupt. Policing also went through phenomenal changes uh, in this time, mostly for the better. Uh, we entered in the 70s and 80s what we called the professional era, which we're going to try and professionalize, try and prove ourselves. And uh, we ended up in what we, uh, we describe also as the response-oriented era. Emphasis on responding to crime after the fact, 9-11, reactive investigations. It wasn't believed police could prevent crime, that uh, society was going to be responsible for that. But society failed miserably in the 70s and 80s, so by 1990 after 10 years of steady crime increase, 1990 worst crime year in the history of our country, certainly New York City, as you reflected on, that uh, police leaders, academics, reformers, uh, community activists got together in Harvard Kennedy School and at the executive sessions and came up with a new philosophy of policing called community policing. The idea of partnership, police and community working together, focusing on mutually agreed problems with a return to emphasis on prevention. And it's been my model of policing actually since the 70s as a young lieutenant in Boston. The focus of Sir Robert Peel on not only the prevention of crime, but also disorder, the so-called broken windows, quality of life emphasis. Something we had lost focus on in the 70s and 80s. And in responding only to crime, we didn't focus on preventing it. In the 90s, in the community police era, we created a new successful revolutionary CompStat, the timely, accurate focus on crime, the extent that we could predict where it was going to occur. Focus on also quality of life to prevent things from getting larger by focusing on when they're smaller. Unfortunately, <coughs> we also began what has been one of the main targets of a lot of the demonstrations today, mass incarceration, where to try to correct the chaos of the 70s and 80s in a well-intended effort to control behavior. Uh, A lot of people went to jail instead of to drug treatment, instead of to alternative types of correction uh, of behavior. And we ended up with some of the terrible grievances we're dealing with today. We also, one of the tools we used was overused over the next 20 or 30 years by American police in New York and elsewhere. That's the stop, question and frisk tool. Uh, Absolutely essential policing, but it was overused. In any event, the 90s saw a 40 to 50% decline in violent crime in the country, and as we moved into the 21st century, we were then in the midst of another revolution, 9-11, which brought policing into the counterterrorism world, but policing coming into the counterterrorism world became much more intrusive into the private lives of many citizens, our Muslim citizens, once again our black citizens, in new ways that were being challenged. So, police were once again finding themselves in conflict. And then we ended another revolution in 2006 to 2008, the social media revolution. The smartphone was invented. And with that, all the technology that's flowed creating the social media effort Kindle, Twitter, uh, so much that shapes our world today, and police trying to get their arms around that and to use it. And then now, the era that we're in now, which uh, effectively is uh, the precision focus of policing using intelligence so that we can concentrate on the criminal that we identify rather than the broad-based minority community that we were in many respects abusing with overuse, stop, question, frisk, etc. Even understanding the unrecognized uh, uh, aspect of that world that the majority of crime in our country, unfortunately in inner cities, occurs in the inner city among minority neighborhoods, the vast majority of victims of minority And unfortunately, the vast majority of perpetrators minority. So police as they became more precise, whether it's dealing with terrorism or dealing with traditional crime or disorder, were finding themselves in increasing conflict. But along the way, we lost an important component of what Sir Robert Peel identified, and that was legitimacy. We lost the support of those we were trying to protect, of those we were trying to prevent crime for. And the crux of the issue now uh, in this era of uh, racial redress is that what people are demanding is police legitimacy, transparency, accountability, much more responsiveness. So you're correct. The long-winded answer, uh, this is a time like any other time.
1: No surprise, but that was encyclopedic, probably because you were part of that initial conversation, all those conversations, uh, including the one at Harvard where you decided to direct policing back towards community policing. So if I hear you correctly, you had there was this initiative in 70s and 80s, probably more in the 80s of let's get back to serving our communities, back to the Peel principle. Um, But at the same time, you have mass incarceration going on. You have overuse of stop and frisk going on. You have counterterrorism being given to policing, something you and I worked a lot on in a role that I think police is critical. uh, Police have a critical role in. And in the entire time, police are losing legitimacy because of those some of those behaviors being overused. And in many communities, police and are are looked more as occupiers, looked at more as occupiers and warriors and less as a group working with the community and more as a group working upon the community. Um, And so that entire thing, again, as you say, the police began to lose legitimacy in many communities. Uh, And that actually leads not only to huge problems, often for minority populations, but an inability to police as well as as a police officer or police department should. The community is not working with you. You're not getting the intelligence. You're not getting the insights. Uh, you're seen again as an occupier. Um, and it becomes a really nasty dynamic. Um, is that is that about am I summarizing effectively what I think I heard you say? So, correct,
2: that uh, uh, The frustration of American police leaders at this time, and I've been very fortunate over these last 50 years, particularly over the last 30, I've worked with some extraordinary reformers. Uh, I myself would describe myself as a progressive. I think they would describe themselves as progressive, neither Democrat or Republican. We serve whatever the, the office of the pollers party might be, but progressive in the sense that we recognize we're always evolving and always seeking to get better. So in many respects, we've been leading the modernization of policing, we've been leading the embrace of community policing, we've been leading the embrace of transparency. A frustration we feel at the moment, and I'll speak for myself, but I think I speak for many of my colleagues who I stay in close touch with, many of the major chiefs of major cities that are in the midst of all this turmoil. Uh, I would describe this as an etch-a-sketch moment for us in that 20, 30 years of significant reform of our profession, it has resulted in a traumatic turnaround of crime, effectively addressing terrorism, trying to address all the changes that technology has brought about, dealing with the very contentious debates around artificial intelligence, facial recognition, use of cameras, uh, uh, the whole idea of social media privacy, that we're in the middle of all of that. And I think we have really uh, come a long way, minority representation in our departments men, women of uh, minority communities, of all communities, gay communities, for example. And our frustration is, at the moment, the demonstrations that we refer to that are still going on, uh, most of them are uh, very largely peaceful, thank God, because they'll get more done with that than with the violence. But that there's not a recognition of how far we've come. In some respects, it's as if all the progress of the last, particularly 20, 30 years going back to 1990, the creation of community policing, It's as if none of that ever happened in any of the police departments that are now being attacked. New York City, LA, uh, Boston, uh, maybe to a lesser extent, but LA and New York have gone through some of the most significant reformation of any organization in America. The consent decree in Los Angeles that I headed up for seven years, largest in the country. New York, with all the oversight that everybody is demanding, it already has. So we are not a perfect institution. Kind uh, like medicine, trying to deal with the coronavirus, it's not a perfect institution because they're still wrestling with how to deal with it, both to try to prevent it, as well as how to try to heal it. We're still wrestling with what is the best way to prevent it as well as to heal it. And but we're given no credit at all for the many positive changes. So as we seek to now come to common ground and collaborate, uh, you're going to hear police chiefs advocating look, we don't have to reinvent the wheel. A lot of the things we've been doing already work. It's a matter of institutionalizing them and in many departments changing the culture. And so much of what's being looked at is cultural change.
1: So there are, are, you know, clearly there have been dramatic advances in policing and and I think you've described them really clearly and in a way that makes a lot of sense. At the same time, there are these absolutely inhuman brutalities that we now all share the slow motion murder of George Floyd. We all have to see. We all, unfortunately, should stay witness to. And it, it appears to be a drumbeat. It happens over and over and over. Um, now, I know there's lots of ways of looking at that. Well, so sure. While there's black men being murdered by police with some regularity amongst one million law enforcement officers in America. Right. So I understand uh, that statistically what we're understanding, what we're looking at. And I also understand that there's violence against police officers. But the focus right now is on that violence against black people and particularly black men. And um, and as much as there has been all this progress with policing, there are still departments and there are still parts of certain departments, I suspect you'd agree that need a dramatic shift. And again, I, I'm, I'm thinking of the police chief of Camden, a protege of yours. I think his name is Scott Thompson. Um, and you were saying earlier, and I'll, I'll just I'll just make sure everyone understands the time I've spent with uh, dozens of police chiefs. Uh, they all really of major police departments are your protégés, right? So to listen to you right now is a huge privilege. You have an insight into what's going on there. Scott Thompson uh, head a previous head of the Camden Police Department completely defunded, stopped his entire police department and rebuilt it. Um, and, and in so doing really does not try to design his police department to have the mentality again, back to your appeal principle of. C.O.P. citizens on patrol by the citizens with the citizens versus occupiers and warriors. And It appears that it worked. I don't know that you would need to do that in L.A. or New York or Boston departments you ran. And perhaps it's because you ran them or the consent decree or other things. But are the departments around the city or excuse me, around the world or parts of departments where we need to do something this dramatic. We have to say, look, just stop, restart re-gear, re-understand, get back to community policing and demilitarize, et cetera, uh, and understand that you are servant leaders, you are here to serve and protect. Is that necessary in some places or not?
2: Well, it's definitely necessary. And the good news is we are at that inflection point where uh, there is an opportunity to reimagine, as Sir Robert Peel did in 1829 with his imagination at the beginning of policing, what police should be doing. And if you look at his nine principles, basically, as every bit applicable today as they were back then. But reimagining police is the idea of so much has been put upon the police as governments and budget crises and response to new waves of epidemics, whether it's the mentally ill, whether it's the drug addiction issues of crack in the 80s, opioids in the uh, most recent time, that uh, the homeless issue, which has been thrust upon the police in a big way that uh, I'm always reminded of that commercial many years ago of uh, give it to Mikey. Mikey will lead it. We'll give it to (laughs) the police. The police will do it. And look at what's been literally dumped on the police. Why? Because we're there 24 hours a day, like the fire department. And with with the exception of hospitals, we're the only three entities that are there 24 hours a day. And when we reimagine the police, a lot of what we're looking at is, taking some of those responsibilities away from us and giving them over to people who are more skilled, more trained at it, or sharing those responsibilities. The ARC has been wrestling with this with the homeless issue, spending billions of dollars on it with very mixed success. But we need to reimagine what is the role of the police. The concept of defunding the police effectively, if you look at it, it's uh, four elements. It's reform the police, reimagining as we're talking about, Defunding, taking actual money away and maybe putting it into other services, dismantling the police, uh, not going to happen. That's a paradigm shift that uh, most people are not going to accept. Then the abolition of the police, well, you have to be pretty far to the left, uh, so far to the left that you're actually not even in the frame frame any longer. Nobody's going to basically abolish the police. So we are focusing on reform, reimagination, but ironically, talking about doing that with less money. So how are we gonna train the officers, retrain them? How are we gonna attract new officers at a time when policing is being so uh, vigorously attacked for its failings and not celebrated for any of its successes? How do you expect that we're gonna get minority young men and women into police departments who have been actually doing pretty well? New York City, Los Angeles, Chicago, uh, almost a reflection of their population concentrations. So they are all minority-majority police departments now. But uh, how are you gonna continue to attract young people into this profession (laughs) when it's been so vilified? And that's why I talk about the etch-a-sketch moment. Instead of taking a look at this has failed, but this has worked, when you talk about Scott Thompson, everything Scott did in Camden was a reflection of things that were being done in Boston, Los Angeles, New York are being done on larger scale. He had the benefit, the phenomenal benefit, of being able to effectively get rid of his city police department, but the services were taken over immediately by the county department. So he was able to uh, uh, effectively take the best, a bit of the worst, and uh, had phenomenal success, 50% reduction in crime in an extraordinarily distressed community. So where we are uh, is not where we want to be. It's a long way from where we want to be, but Uh, In that evolution I keep talking about, that. Here's an opportunity to, uh, in the course of this revolution, let's get it right. Uh, In all the previous revolutions, we got some things right, but we also got a lot more. I worry in the frenzy of the moment that uh, we won't have the time to really work on it, digest it, and uh, come out of it with uh, benefits for all.
1: I I think it's important that... um while there's a tremendous amount to be proud of about how policing has evolved. And I think you mentioned a lot of the new burdens police have had that this is also a moment when we have to recognize and you're clearly doing this, that policing in some places by some police or or maybe general aspects of culture across police um, have got to change. And um, and I think uh, a lot of what I hear you talking about and a lot of your proteges talk about about the the occupier mentality, the warrior mentality, kind of uh, it's a bit of a, you know, the samurai versus Ronin, you know, the armed, the armed person who's enforcing the law upon people versus with people. Um, as much as we can get away from that, as much as we can acknowledge that, the better part of what when you mention what defund police means and it you know, it means a lot of things to a lot of people to Rashomon. One thing it means that I think we have to be very careful about is it means to further write law and order voters. That's a category of voters. They're called law and order voters. Um, It's a dog whistle that Donald Trump is using to motivate them to vote for him because of the point you make, Chief Bratton, that, you know, there's this immature idea that we'll just get rid of policing. Obviously, we can't do that. We have to be able to protect the sheep from the wolves with sheepdogs. The sheepdogs need to be there. Um, but it's become a dog whistle. I guess I'm really extending the dog, the dog analogy here. It's become a dog whistle to far right voters um, because of its, its fear and basing to them. Um, looking at you know, videos of you know, our president sending videos of African-Americans hurting white people, um, you know, is, is really blowing that dog whistle hard. But I I think this is a moment where people like you, I'm so glad you're standing up and others saying, like, let's reconsider how citizens can work with citizens to reduce crime. And let's reconsider what it is we ask of police. Um, I I think it's worth noting that you go back to this moment where community policing was created or recreated in the 80s and 90s. And again, largely by you. And in and of itself, that probably would have been a pure and good mission. And it probably would have been largely successful. But too much then was asked of the police and put on them. Um, And and perhaps we have to figure out how to break it down. I think of New York where you dial nine one one nominally for an emergency or a violent crime. and You dial three one one for a lifestyle problem, a noise violation, a parking issue or whatever. Um, And I think of the UK where you've spent a lot of time and a lot of the police response and police presence is unarmed more of that 3-1-1, de-escalating community policing, get to know your town kind of policing that you've advocated for so long when you need the 9-1-1 emergency response, you need the armed response. It shows up. Is there a role to take the guns away from a number of police officers or law enforcement officers or community policers or community assistants in this country? Can we get towards that British model or are we too much of a gun culture and unable to do that?
2: I may offer several comments. Uh, in Britain, there is great dissatisfaction with their police services, has been for generations now, uh, despite most of them being unarmed. Uh, through choice, the unions over there have consistently voiced uh, opposition to being armed, That uh, rather focusing on de escalation, being equipped properly. But they're living in a very different society than us, in a country like ours, with more guns than people, with the love of firearms, with a history of firearms. Uh, England is a very different society, so you really cannot compare the two experiences. But even in England, tremendous racial tension around policing. Uh, You talked about this idea of policing in America. Uh, There's no ability in America today to disarm the police. I'm sorry, the society we live in, you can't ask officers to go uh, toward the dangers they face. whether It's terrorism, traditional crime. uh, You just can't do it can we seek to involve many other types of agencies working in partnership with them oftentimes uh, maybe separate from them Uh, this is the defunding uh, effort that we're talking about possibly that's some of the things that being proposed new york has tried it with limited success one of the reasons things keep getting dumped on the police is that the use of police powers oftentimes ends up becoming necessary in case of New York City, every four minutes, there was a call for an emotionally disturbed person in the city. And that call will usually commit to 911. They now have teams of officers and uh, especially trained uh, medical people that can respond to some of those calls. But so often those calls, you don't know what's happening till you get there. And uh, that's the difficulty. 311 uh, in New York City, what you just described, those type of calls, there was nobody in New York to respond to those 311 calls except the police. 311, when it was set up by Mayor Bloomberg, was not something that was going to take police out of the response picture. It effectively, just basically remove the emergency out of it. 911 was for priority one, life-threatening calls. 311 was for less life-threatening. So, uh, for example, that uh, we're now into what we describe in uh, policing as the barbecue season. In the inner city, the barbecue on the corner, people don't have backyards, so they barbecue on the front sidewalk, go on a block party, and unfortunately many of those block parties get out of control. What is the first call that is sent to 311? Because it's a nuisance complaint, but who ends up having to come is the police. So as part of this reimagining of police, there is going to be a discussion around who has to go? Do we need to send an armed police officer or can we send a neighborhood representative from the community who knows everybody at that party? Uh, those are options we can look at. What's the same as we police now for 25 years we've been using gang intervention players who are oftentimes former gang members who can relate to gangs better than we can. Uh, in LA while I was there as chief, we created a gang intervention academy where we literally sent all these uh, young men to school gave them diplomas. Oftentimes, it was the first diploma they've received in their life. So we're trying a lot of different things. The problem at this juncture, RP, what I'm worrying about is unlike previous times, because of the situation we find ourselves you know, the coronavirus, the economy, uh, the incredible political divide we have where nothing is getting done in Washington, uh, I don't think the money's going to be there to do all these things. When they're talking about an $11 billion deficit in New York City, laying off 33,000 employees, including 3,000 police officers, where is the money going to come from to fund uh, just quality of life enforcement, peddled enforcement in Manhattan? Uh, you, you live in Manhattan, you're familiar with the peddler situation, illegal peddlers. Uh, they want to take, have yeah, their taken over, taken away from police. Police want to get rid of it. But when they sat down to discuss taking it over, and they saw all the bureaucracy that was involved. Where do you store all these goods that you get? How do you inventory them? How do you keep track of them? How do you keep them safeguarded? They backed away very quickly because the cost of the new bureaucracy was something the city was unwilling to take on. So a lot of great ideas at this particular point in time. uh, But what I worry about is the soft underbelly of so much of what's going on. Is the funding that's going to be necessary for it, and with the political divide we have in Washington right now, or for that matter, in cities that don't have any money, that uh, where is this funding going to come from?
1: It is a horrible time in America right now. Unfortunately, uh, the U.S. economy is shrunk, is shrinking. Uh, states like New York and others are going to build massive deficits, as you mentioned. The money to try creative things isn't going to be there uh, yet. We are demanding of our governments to do things they haven't done before, um, some of which are going to cost a lot of dough. Uh, it's a horrible reality. I was looking at the protests in Philadelphia and how the police uh, cornered a bunch of protesters and tear gassed them as they were stuck between fences in a highway. New York Times had a piece on that today. I suspect you've seen it. And I was struck with the fact that you had a relatively small number of SWAT police there, and I didn't see any white shirt leadership. And I was wondering, where are the city council members? So when you think of the second force, I I know I know you've really obviously worked extraordinarily closely with your civilian leadership in your policing history. But I wonder if it's time for us to ask our council members and our mayors and others to get down on the street with the police during these protests and take a look at what's going on. And ultimately, they're responsible. It's ultimately there. It's their force, um, you know, at least from a, a chain of command status. Um, and I you know I, I never see that, so that, that's just one quick thought. <clears throat> I think I, I might point
2: out. out along that line that uh, quite obviously some of the tactics that police have used to deal with the disturbances, particularly those that uh, drifted into violence or looting or disorderly behavior, uh, on occasion, unfortunately, when that behavior was not disorderly, but was overuse of police uh, equipment, the tear gas, instead of the bubble balls, pepper spray. I'd point out that in New York City, city I'm certainly familiar with, one I'm very intimately familiar with, the New York City Police Department has not used tear gas since the 1960s. doesn't use rubber bullets, with the exception of its ESU, usually in hostage-type uh, uh, violent situations. Uh, what they effectively use are cops with batons and occasionally shields. So I actually had to buy the shields in 2014 because they didn't have any. That uh, when we're in the midst of those disturbances after the murders of police officers, Ramos and Lou, So going forward, uh, there's going to be a significant reevaluation of what is appropriate police response, what is appropriate police equipment. And I'd like to raise an issue that you've touched on twice in the commentary about uh, uh, police. So much of our activity is directed by politicians. You just raised the issue, where were so many of the politicians during the recent disturbances? Many were there, but their voice was lost in the tumult of voices. Uh, These demonstrations, in many respects, were leaderless. some of the groups that are out there celebrate the fact that they don't have organized structure, which makes it very difficult for the police to deal with demonstrations when you don't know who to talk with, who actually speaks with the voice of the Martin Luther King and the civil rights demonstrations or some of the events that I dealt with back in 2014. But the idea is that uh, politicians oftentimes, through their policies, laws, effectively control and direct police activity. So whether it's fair evasion, Whether it's in Ferguson, Missouri, the state of Missouri, many of those cities and counties in Missouri rely on revenue from police enforcement activities as their principal source of revenue. So when the after effect of Ferguson, when they analyzed it, the bulk of that city's revenue came from the city pushing the cops to get more tickets. And what did the cops do? They responded to political pressure and leadership and got more tickets. In a community that has a huge number of minorities, they ended up getting caught in the middle of it. So there's uh, a lot of blame to go around here that, uh, uh, and as we go forward, the idea of assess who to blame, but then assess uh, after we get done with the blaming, let's get on with getting it fixed.
0: So, um, you know, I think one of the things that, that's important to point out is that, you know, racism in America is a cultural problem. And in many ways, it's way upstream of policing and it's way downstream of policing and you know, police sits in this critical middle place and you think about, you know, just mass incarceration, for example, and, you know, the sentencing structures across the country. Again, that's that's the, these these are voters. These are these are politicians who are making these decisions. Um, and, and so I just wanted to point out that side of this equation. I mean, it currently at the moment, the police are like right in the middle of this, this this question of racism in America. And so that's kind of one side of the equation that makes life difficult for police. And I want to point out that when I was at those demonstrations in New York City, there was a a lot of police were there. They were a multiracial, you know, many races represented in the force. And, you know, a lot of abuse towards them. And I was fully impressed with, you know, their 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 demeanor, their commitment. I mean, they're playing such a critical role. And it was just such an interesting cultural moment to sit in that place and feel that and I was, you know, listen, I was there's no science in this. But what I observed, I was very impressed with. So that's kind of one side of it is that the police get caught in, in this in this cultural place. The other side of it is and, you know, we did a We did a film a couple of years ago, Chief, on um, on the life of police. And, uh, you know, the first time you've you pick up a SIDS baby or the violence you you witness or the stresses that come with the job and then the abuses that come with the job. And um, that's a whole nother side that most people just they don't have the time to think about or, or to consider. Um, and so it was like the psychological makeup of the police force itself. You know, and I remember my brother when he fought in the Gulf War, he came back and he would tell me these stories. Um, he doesn't tell many stories about those days. But, you know, the one thing he does say is that when you're in these certain critical situations that most humans have never experienced, it's going to break some people down mentally in ways that aren't that easy to understand. Uh, as outsiders. And I think so both sides of that equation and sort of for the police to be left in the middle of that. And I want to be clear, the police could do better jobs. That would be my observation. But the pressures are real and generally unknown. And I'd be curious on on sort of the second part of that equation, which is the life of a policeman on a day to day basis and the challenges that go along with that.
2: Well, the point you're raising, uh, the idea of you're you're looking through a prison that has many Images depending on which part of the prism you're looking at, and the vast majority of police do the right thing almost all the time. Make mistakes, some of them unfortunately intentionally cross the line, the corrupt, the brutal, the Uh On average, in the police department South Lead, I would uh, indicate based on the complaint structure of those departments, that three to four percent of those officers shouldn't have been on the department. We work very hard to try and get them off the department. We're limited by labor rules, by laws, et cetera. But uh, we're very understanding how they can corrupt the image of that vast majority work very hard. I'd like to comment about the demonstrations that you attended and the idea of the videos that are played over and over again, either by the news media, whether it be cable TV or the uh, uh, major networks, or on social media that in those demonstrations with tens, twenty, 20, 30, 40,000 people in New York City, for example, we have seen the same, I'd say 10 or 12 incidents played over and over again. This where almost everybody in New York is carrying a camera, a video camera, a smartphone. And uh, the regular media was out there in force. And when you consider the thousands of officers that were engaged on a daily basis, and what they were dealing with, some of the tensions you talked about, when you saw some of what was directed at the police and large the response of being stoic and you know sucking it up. And do some of them break from time to time? We saw some of that, some of those egregious actions, which are being dealt with. But I would point out that, uh, why do we play the same 10 or 12 images over and over again? Because there were 10 or 12 images. You think if any of those demonstrators, yourself included, captured, with their phone, an officer engaged in what would seemingly be an egregious action, they wouldn't push that out. So some of the good news is that we effectively have in this country now, a couple hundred million monitors, everybody carrying a smartphone, who the first time they see a police engagement, whether it's lawful, but awful, they start videotaping. And what do we see on television? We've had some horrific incidents, certainly in the last couple of weeks, because of just the scale of demonstrations. But the good news is, as we go forward, uh, we can basically put things into a proper perspective. There's a lot that goes on in policing it shouldn't, and we have better ways of dealing with it. Uh, There's a lot that goes on in the behavior of the public in these demonstrations that shouldn't happen. There's a way of addressing that also. So coming out of this that is bad as the times are, I'm optimistic based on previous experiences that we usually come out of these times the better for the cauldron that we find ourselves in this time however the idea is that the issue uh systemic racism with us for 400 years it permeates every form of our society we're not all racist but we operate in a very systemic racist society and it's systemic racist world for that matter not just against blacks but it's it's the nature of the world here's an opportunity to do better to uh, make it a better place everywhere for everyone at least in this country Uh, Let's not blow that opportunity that uh, so in the midst of some of the the chaos, in the midst of some of the anger, frustration, uh, let's find a a place where we can all get together some common ground that we can collaborate with each other and everybody come out of it with something. Is everybody going to get everything they want? Abe Lincoln was so smart when he talked about that you please some of the people some of the time. You're not going to please them all. Uh, Let's try to please as many as we can uh, this time and uh, come out of this experience, the better for
1: it. Thanks. Uh, The whole conversation was fantastic. I think part of what we have to understand here is we're we're basically talking about basketball with Michael Jordan. Right. So you have been, you know, if not the best, certainly recognized as one of the very best police commissioners and chiefs of the last century. Um, And if we had every police department run by someone like you, we probably wouldn't be in this problem, but we don't. Uh, the cities that we mentioned today and talk about where things are going relatively well are largely departments that have been run by you or your protégés or other very enlightened police officers. And but we still have a number of police officers who feel like occupiers and feel like it's their they have some warrior mentality and and perhaps in the culture change that we need to get to here we can reimagine that as well. Um, well there there think-
2: has been a change. The warriors that we sought to recruit in the eighties. 80s- were necessary because the 80s were horrific. The gun violence, 2,243 murders, 6,000 people shot in the streets of New York in 1990. Uh, you had to make the streets safer for people come wow, out into the streets. But you also had to make it safer so you could recruit a different type of cop who effectively would be going into a different environment. And I think we've been succeeding at that. It's not been as recognized as I'd like it to be, but even going to your Michael Jordan comment, and thank you for the compliments, about me. That. Uh, uh, I get attacked as much as I get praised, and particularly in this mm-hmm. day and age, they're going after quality of life, going after broken windows, now going after CompStat, all things I'm very proud of and will continue to be proud of. But even using Michael Jordan, uh, an article a couple weeks ago about Michael, that uh, one of the most significant basketball players in history talking about uh, him in the sport, that uh, the other side of him. So even the uh, legendary hero uh, ends up getting beat up about some of his uh, uh, issues. No, there's more for all of us to get uh, up, and uh, we do, but uh, we need to get beyond that and take a look at what's worked, how do we make it work better in the future. And I thank you for this opportunity to talk about it because it's uh, not just a soundbite conversation, it's it's a deeper discussion than that. It has to be a deeper discussion.
1: And I also think it's really important that we all hear you recognizing the systemic racism in our society, the major fixes that have to happen. It's a time for reimagination. Uh, and that your, word, your like the, what,
2: Is it the old Beatles song? Imagination. Who, who did that song back in mm-hmm. the sixties? It, it, it's, oh, it's, it. it's, it's a wonderful theme for twenty twenty. It really is. Yeah. That uh, in terms of that, that that should be the the anthem of twenty
0: twenty. Chief, I, I admire um, your candor, your your commitment. I, I lived in the last thirty years, I lived in Boston, I lived in New York, I lived in Los Angeles. So thank you also for your service. And I appreciate your well, time I've today.
2: i serving, continue to enjoy serving. And I look forward to seeing the finished product here once you guys get done with it.